If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the first episode in our Bayer Tapestry series, presented by David Musgrove. Welcome to History Extras, unravelling the Bio Tapestry series. This is episode one. Why, where and when was the tapestry made? I'm David Musgrove, content director for BBC History magazine and History Extra. I've long been fascinated by the Bio Tapestry, and when news broke in 2018 of the potential loan of the embroidery from Bio to the UK, I set to writing a book about it, with Professor Michael Lewis, a tapestry expert and member of the Tapestry's Scientific Committee. The book is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021 and is called The Story of the Biotapestry, Unravelling the Norman Conquest. In this five-part podcast series, I've invited tapestry and 11th century history experts to join Professor Lewis and I to talk our way through what we know about the tapestry and how we should understand it. It's worth saying that the tapestry is surely one of the most recognisable pieces of medieval artwork. It has a raw power and simplicity of style that grabs us still today, almost a millennium after the events it portrays. For that reason, it's come to dominate popular representations of the period, and perhaps even skew our understanding of the conquest, as we'll see in this series. A bit of context. The biotapestry is a circa 70 metre or 225 foot long embroidery that depicts events in the run-up to and occasion of the Norman Conquest, when Duke William of Normandy led a force that defeated that of King Harold II of England at the Battle of Hastings in October 1066. These events are shown in the tapestry in a cartoon style in a central frieze, with borders above and below that depict animals, fantastical and natural, and other scenes which may or may not relate to the main action. It has a very short caption inscriptions in Latin which accompany the images, but for the most part a terse in the extreme. Now it's known as the biotapestry, but technically speaking it's an embroidery rather than a tapestry because it's made with a linen base and coloured wool stitched on top. 
An actual tapestry is woven, so the terminology is incorrect, but it's so widely known as the Bayer tapestry that we'll stick with that name here, and we'll come back to it in a future episode as well. That's why it matters, and why it would be such a huge event if it did come to the UK for an exhibition. Now, in this opening episode, we're going to look at the questions of when, where, and how the tapestry was made. These are questions that are not perhaps quite as straightforward as you might imagine, and understanding them helps us understand the tapestry itself much more fully. For this discussion, Professor Lewis and I are joined by Professor Shirley Ann Brown, who is Professor Emerita of Art History at York University of Toronto, and author of The Bio Tapestry, a source book, which is a fabulous resource for anyone interested in the layers of scholarship that have been carried out on the tapestry. Also, we've got Professor Elizabeth Paston, who's Professor of Art History at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and author, along with Stephen White, of The Bio Tapestry and Its Context, a reassessment. So, The first question I asked was, why was it made? On the face of it, you might think that as a record of the victory of William the Conqueror, it's pretty obvious that it was made to celebrate that military triumph for William and his supporters. Shirley Ann Brown explains that there is a bit more to it than that. Obviously, it was made to both record history, but to create history because somebody had to choose the various episodes that were going to be shown, who was going to be featured, and how to knit it all together to create what had to be some kind of credible story. It is depicted in a very easy-to-see, easy-read fashion. It's almost as if you were there. I always compare it to, and this will show my age a little bit, uh, I always compare it to an American television show called And You Were There, which I saw as a child, uh, which took footage from the Second World War and knitted a believable narrative about how the Allied victory was a great victory and how it worked. And because it used actual footage, it was very believable. And none of us thought that there was any other interpretation of events. And I see the tapestry as doing this very thing, that it was made to cement a particular narrative about uh, the Norman, we call it the conquest of England, but it was really just the beginning. It was the first step in the conquest of England. It took many more decades before we really created an Anglo-Norman Uh, society. Uh, That will lead us on to later questions about who made it and so forth. But it's propaganda. Uh, There are arguments that it was solely Norman propaganda. Uh, There are arguments made that it had a very hidden English narrative, and I prefer to use the word English rather than Anglo-Saxon, Uh, that it had a very hidden English message. Uh, People can't really quite make up their minds uh, what it was meant. We will never really, really know. We we can only read it from our 21st century perspective. Uh, So I'll hand that over to the others and let them see what they want to argue. Michael, you don't, um, f- thanks, Shelley. Michael, you don't uh, give much credence to the uh, hidden message idea, do you? No, I don't really, because I think um, it kind of suggests that Europeans at that time weren't as linked up as they probably were. You know, the idea that 
the Normans could weave in a message that the Anglo-Saxons <laughs> or English or whoever just wouldn't get and, and vice versa. Um, you know, so I don't I don't really buy that. And I mean, propaganda is obviously a very interesting word because, you know, we use it quite casually in many ways. Um, and, you know, obviously we think it's about, normally we interpret propaganda as something that's asserting a particular message. But my view is the tapestry may be propaganda for another reason, and that is not to give any definitive actual message. I mean, in some ways, um, as is the case with us now, debating the kind of various um, various um, differences um, of what it could tell us and who could have done what and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, in some ways, it's quite an ambiguous history in many respects, I find it. You know, in some of the key aspects, you know, they it kind of sits on the fence. I mean, there's no doubt, of course, um, that, you know, William has portrayed as a conqueror of the English. It doesn't kind of change that narrative. Um, but I wouldn't say that Harold is seen as a as a, a baddie in many ways as well. I mean, it's not that binary in in, in many ways, you could argue. Um, it's it's a bit more kind of imaginative. And obviously, the way it throws up other sorts of individuals or doesn't talk about other individuals, um, again, you know, makes it quite fascinating because you kind of think, well, what? why is that? And is that done on purpose? Or is that just because it doesn't fit the story that's being told? Um, so yeah, I kind of feel it sits on the fence, essentially. Yeah, and it's it's ambiguity is apparent uh, throughout, and that is one of the one of the sort of the great joys of it. And I do like that idea that you just sort of referenced, Michael, of the fact that William is clearly, you know, he, he clearly wins the Battle of Hastings. That's, that's not in doubt. But a Harold does, to me, seem to be kind of set up as someone who who is worthy enough to be uh, an opponent of him, someone who who is, you know, a, a, a figure, a sort of a comparable figure, someone who needs to be beaten and who William uh, can beat and, and sort of show his show his mettle in doing that. Um, Elizabeth, you you have a a slightly different sort of take on on uh, on why it was made, I think. Well, several, but responding to comments that have been made, particularly what Michael just said, it, it's been pointed out, and this goes back to Bernard de Montfaucon in the early 18th century, that the Bayou embroidery is underwhelmingly triumphal. That is, that there are these moments where um, Norman triumph could be insisted on. The landing of the horses in Hastings, for example, that are underplayed. Um, so I, I, I just wanted to, to mention that point, as well as the fact that the, the narrative is surprisingly magnanimous towards Harold. As, as the loser of the Battle of Hastings, he, he gets lots of airplay. So I, I, uh, I wanted to kind of add those notes to it. Um, I think one other hypothesis that's part of the literature that's kind of interesting it, and that speaks to this ambiguity or open-endedness of the narrative um, was a hypothesis put forth by a scholar, uh, by an American Roman art historian named Richard Brilliant, that, that we have to understand this, um, this textile as a kind of performance piece, that it's 
um, laconic in its inscriptions and open-ended in its narrative because each um, person performing, telling the story, could alter, expand on it. And it's kind of an interesting way um, to think about um, the piece. Um, uh, yeah, I really like that idea from Brilliant, the idea that you, you need to have a jongleur, someone explaining. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a blow for us to understand, it, isn't it? Because we then don't have any clue what that person may or may not have been saying. But, um, but it's, a, it's an interesting idea. Right. Or politician-like, would he change the narrative in different audiences? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shelley. Yes, just one last point here on what Elizabeth is saying. With the inscriptions, they are laconic. They're like talking points uh, that were produced that somebody like a university lecturer addressing a first-year class uh, could use to expand expand upon as seen fit to whichever audience is going to be going to be addressed. So in that way, as I said, it's like that television series that that I watched way back when. It's all there to make you believe and, and to create a certain version of the story. So do you see the encryptions then as kind of like the uh, the bits at the bottom of the PowerPoint presentation to remind you what to say? As, so so crib, cribs for, 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 yeah. uh, for a, a, a jongleur. Yeah, they're talking points. Um, uh, Elizabeth. Um, one point I want to make um, uh, about its purpose um, or why was it made um, goes to why I, I, I call it an embroidery. Um, and and that which is what it is. It is um, colored, dyed wool, um, uh, embroidered on nine links of linen. But um, if you hear tapestry, you can think of a, a textile of a certain thickness and nubby weave that insulates. Um, stone walls, um, and, and that has a practical function. This narrow strip of embroidery on linen doesn't have this density to it. And so by, by reminding myself that it's an embroidery and banner-like in its dimensions at that, I, I don't think necessarily of a baronial hall and the tapestries that are practical um, for being inside of them. So, Sure. Um, I, I was just thinking, we talked about the inscriptions a little bit here, and maybe we should just um, uh, describe more clearly what they are for our listeners. So the inscriptions are very short Latin tags, uh, which say things like, here is William, uh, and, and don't really go into too much more detail than that. There's one or two occasions when you get a little bit more, but they're, very, they're, they're essentially very terse uh, captions to, to, to the main action and not really giving much else away. Um, Michael, do you want to uh, throw anything in at this point? Yeah, because I kind of see it slightly differently, I think, because I actually, although it is possible, obviously, to see these as these snippets of information as something that might prompt someone else to kind of expand upon it or even explain if they're talking in front of the tapestry, imagined, you know, talking about it in different ways to different audiences, I, per I think personally that it's deliberate, that limitation of information. I think it's all about ensuring that we can tell a story that everyone's 
side can be sort of taken on board in a in a in a way. Um, so the the idea is that both the conquered English um, and the victorious Normans and anyone else in between, I guess, um, and later on, you know, obviously those people who are both in a way can actually look at the tapestry and say, this isn't a problem for me. Um, and I think in some ways, I know we've we've touched on this already, but that kind of it depends on, again, you know, when you think this object was made and what is the political context of people interpreting it. But personally, I, I kind of like the idea that it's, it's deliberately ambiguous to serve um, a, a political situation where it was pretty chaotic, probably. Sure. Elizabeth. I, I think Michael gets into a really interesting point. And as an example, I'm going to talk about the scene of the oath where the Latin text says, essentially, I'm not, I'm not quoting directly, here, Harold made an oath to William. And it doesn't say what the oath was about. You can read the Norman historian William of Poitiers and find William of Poitiers' nine-point plan for what Harold swore an oath to that involves quite detailed points about marriages, handing over of castles, and everything else. But all the embroidery says is that he swore an oath. It doesn't even say he swore an oath about the crown. It's just an oath. So it it leaves it open. Although I, I would say that medieval art generally doesn't temporalize excessively um, it, in in its context. That it's it it's thinking about a, a larger um time frame than than any one series of events. So let's try and tackle the first question, which is when was the tapestry made? Now it has to be after 1066, unless somebody who was involved with it is a time traveller, because we know that the uh, events shown uh, go up to the Battle of Hastings of 1066. Now what we don't know is whether the end of the tapestry as we see it is the actual end and whether there is a missing panel or panels that takes the story on further, um, but it has to be after the Battle of Hastings. So most scholars, uh, I think, uh, would agree that it was it was made in the, in the last third of the 11th century. Some people say it was made very close to, uh, to the Battle of Hastings and some people would put it quite a lot later. So let's just try and tackle that question. So I'm going to throw that uh, firstly at Shirley-Anne to give us a sense about what you think about uh, about the, the dating of the tapestry. Dating the tapestry has been one of the major questions because we don't have any documentary evidence concerning its absolute origins including the date, of course. Uh, people use various kinds of evidence, the story itself, of course. People use other literary uh, tellings of the, the story as perhaps a source for the narrative. And because of that, based on that evidence, uh, dating has ranged from 1067 well into the 1200s, depending upon which liter literary source people see the narrative relying. 
So although now uh, the majority believe that the last third of the 11th century was its is its proper dating, uh, there are still other people who, who question this. And one of the latest entries uh, places it in the decade of the 11 teens, uh, around 1120. So, so Michael, what what do you think? Because I think you would say that you would constrain it in a in a tighter time frame than that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems with the dating, as as Shirley Ann has kind of highlighted, really, is that there's um there's various pieces of evidence that if you put them together, then you can get quite tight dating. But if one of them kind of drops or falls out, then it becomes um uh, a bit more a bit more complicated than that. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of see a potential end date for the production of the tapestry as it's um, uh, as it's as the consecration of Bayer Cathedral and the tapestry being made and presented for that, which is in 1077. So that starts to form a sort of potential end date, but of course that's not certain. In some ways, the evidence for that is really based on the fact that the tapestry was found in Bayer somehow must have travelled to France. But again, there's an assumption then it was made in England for, for that to sort of happen. Um, I mean, without kind of going to, to kind of too much detail, because it does get quite complicated, I mean, I, I sort of, in my own mind, favour a date between about 1072 and 1077, because in 1072, this guy called Abbot Scolland, um, it seems, um, became um, Abbot of St Augustine's um Canterbury, where he um, could have had a role in the production of the tapestry. But but yes, I mean, if he didn't, then the beginning date could have been um, <laughs> quite different, of course. It's, it's quite complicated. Elizabeth, where, where, where do you stand on it? Is there any chance, for instance, that you that uh, the, the 1120s, as Shirley Ann mentioned, could be, uh, could be the date of the tapestry? So um, I, I am comfortable with that last quarter, third of the 11th century. In other words, in closer proximity um, to 1066, I, when I began work on um, the textile, I was struck by a similarity in tone between the kind of pictorial narrative on the hanging and later writers such as Edmer, William of Malmesbury, um, Odoric Vitalis, Henry of Huntington. And, and this tone that I would describe is a tone of there's enough blame to go around. And I, I would further locate that with a phrase from Odoric, Almighty God punish countless sinners in both armies in diverse ways. So, so I noticed this kind of retrospective um, quality in writings of the 12th century that I that I felt I could discern in the way the narrative unfolded. But I would leave that as a parallel. I don't think it's a basis for redating. I just think that there is um, something about the view of the events that you see in this pictorial narrative that's um, that's big in scope, that's thoughtful, 
um, that's not um, uh, tied to any one perspective on the events. There's two things that have come out of there that I think are, are really interesting because um, it's this kind of, I, we might touch upon it uh, in a later podcast perhaps, but it's this kind of reconciliation sort of idea of, of these different historical narratives. And it seems to me, I mean, which almost contradicts exactly what I think in terms of the dating, is that either the tapestry could have been produced quite close to the events it produces for the same reasons, because at that time, the, the Normans obviously were hoping for some sort of reconciliation with the Anglo-Saxons in the immediate aftermath of the Norman conquest. Or, as Elizabeth sort of suggests, you know, later on, when there's this kind of reflective period that we're now in an Anglo-Norman state, how do we interpret the Norman conquest? So I think it is fascinating that there are these other narratives, which obviously are the only ones we have, not of what necessarily existed at the time, that that may kind of shape our understanding of, of placing the tapestry within a context. And of course, the narratives um, are one thing, and the other is obviously the art historical traditions that we probably will come into later on, and to, to what extent the tapestry reflects those, which you could argue tells a completely different story, actually. Um, and and that's obviously what makes it so fascinating, the tapestry, because there's these just these blends of different sorts of sources that te- seem to give us quite contradictory um, evidence. And that's I one think. of the fun fun things about the tapestry and the difficulties is uh, mentioning talking about the documentary sources is uh, viewing the tapestry as a documentary source is very difficult because the inscriptions on it are very terse and short and often quite vague uh, and hard to understand. So to see it as a historical uh, document in it in that sense is uh, is is quite a challenging and fun thing to do. Elizabeth, what what do you want to add to the to the conversation? Um, I was going to layer on the the comments that Shirley Ann and Michael have made that, um, for me, the 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 style um, comparanda for the um, f- for the character of this pictorial narrative puts it in the last third of the eleventh century, and and I just want to be clear that 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 evidence seems the most conclusive. I've made a parallel to the mood of later writers, but it seems to me that this style dating would put it in the last third of the 11th century. Let's take stock for a moment. That discussion you've just listened to has demonstrated that there isn't agreement among scholars as to why the tapestry was made. We can certainly say that it leaves a lot of space for an interpretation from the audience, It seems reasonable to conclude that the original designer did intend to allow for that variety of views to be available, and that the ambiguity of the tapestry is intentional. One thing is certain, in that it does tell the tale of William's conquest of England and his victory over Harold. On one level, as Shirley Ann pointed out, that's a simple story that is obvious to follow, but it is selective in what it includes and what it omits from that narrative, which is of course the case with every history. Whether it was designed to allow for some sort of reconciliation between vanquished English and conquering Normans, or simply reflected the new accommodation on the ground, as Michael alluded to, or perhaps offered a commentary on the sinful ways of the people that led to the conflict, which Elizabeth is going to talk about later, are just some of the views that have been suggested. We'll come back to what is actually in the story in episode 3 of this series, and indeed what's not in the story in episode 4. There are numerous other points of dispute regarding the tapestry, not least the question of where it was made. And that's what our panel tackles next.
So in, in the book that uh, that Michael and I have, have written, we've kind of followed the, the Canterbury argument uh, that it's uh, that it's it's probably uh, a provenance in in Canterbury made there. Um, and there's various reasons for that. So, Michael, do you want to have a, a crack at just um, distilling those reasons for the for the Canterbury argument? Yes. Gosh, it's, it's, it's hard to distill it, to be honest, but um, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, I think the first important thing to say is is that the tapestry seems to reflect um, manuscripts, so the designs, the depictions in manuscripts, illustrated manuscripts, um, that were made um, in Canterbury in the late 10th century and early part of the 11th century. Um, so there's some manuscripts in particular that have, of notes, including the Old English Hexateuch um, and, and, and maybe Junius Eleven and, and others as well. Um, so it's kind of following a tradition. So it seems to be borrowed from those. Now, of course, the important point to make here is that you could copy drawings from any manuscript anywhere and transfer them across um, the whole of England, uh, Normandy, other parts of Western Europe. So that doesn't that doesn't sort of nail it. But also within the tapestry, you have the depiction of this character, Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, who's the half-brother of William the Conqueror. Now, of course, if he seems to have a role in the tapestry that um, that is beyond really his kind of um, the way he's mentioned in other sorts of sources. Um, so it does suggest, on the surface at least, that he has some sort of role in the story. And, and that's led people to think, well, maybe he was the patron of the tapestry, etc. And again, that sort of dates it because it ties it down to when he was about or when people might want to be sort of um, championing him. So they're the kind of I suppose the two main reasons um, of, of, of that, you know, kind of giving it a, a sort of Canterbury um, provenance. Um, so there, there is a scholar who would have the, um, the hanging made um, for the monastery of Saint-Florent in the Loire Valley in France, but even he would concede a profound Canterbury influence in the design so that even if you're having its destination be elsewhere, as in the argument for France, you would um, be looking to styles associated with Canterbury and to motifs that come up in Canterbury manuscripts that, that you really can't get away from um a problem though uh, that we um that we have that we all have is in terms of what survives and um i've recently written um, an article about this which shows that whilst the strongest parallels are with canterbury manuscripts um there is the fact that um manuscripts produced in canterbury survive more than those of other scriptoria particularly in england so so if you are going to find a parallel for something, um, whatever it is, um, it's going to be probably in the Canterbury manuscript by default because they're the ones that sort of survive. So again, we kind of go into these sort of circular um, arguments. But I mean, we can't obviously really easily consider what doesn't exist. We can only look at what does exist. And I think, you know, on that basis, I, I think there's a really strong links between Canterbury manuscripts um, and the Bayer Tapestry. I mean, just to add just a small point to that, though, I mean, some of these 
illustrations, though they look superficially similar, I'd say, rather than they are copies. Um, And again, that's another thing that I think there's an opportunity to test in the future. You know, what is the actual reality of the links between these drawings that look similar and those that appear in the Bayer tapestry? Can we scientifically test that, I suppose, is the question um, that that I'd like to answer. And there's kind of work that I'm looking at doing that will hopefully take that a little bit further. Okay, so there's there's not a consensus that uh, the the tapestry was made in Canterbury, but there's there's a lot of evidence for it, and a lot of people would would agree with that. But um, Elizabeth, you mentioned the uh, the thesis from uh, George Beach about uh, the Loire Valley um, provenance. Um, Shirley Ann, um, obviously you've studied all, all the all the various things that people have said. I can think of some other uh, places where people have suggested the tapestry was made um, in in Normandy, possibly in by itself by uh, Wolfgang Grape, um, and then Wilton and Winchester. Have been suggested as well. Have, have, have I missed any? Where else have people said that uh, the tapestry might have been made? Uh, the discussions about where it was made have got what I would call a rather romantic history. It all started with Bayeux, of course, as early as the early 18th century, uh, when it was rediscovered, and Bernard de Montfaucon and uh, Antoine Lancelot, who brought it to French uh, the French public's attention in the early 18th century, both placed it in Bayeux, and they linked it uh, very romantically uh, with uh, Matilda, or Mathilde, uh, the conqueror's wife, with the rather romantic story, and we'll discuss this later, I suppose, of how she stitched it with her court ladies in Bayeux while her husband was off conquering England. Uh, that stayed uh, with uh, the popular imagination for quite some time. Uh, In the early 19th century, uh, the English came back saying that, no, no, it must have been made by English uh, stitchers, women, of course, uh, because after all, needlework is a woman's business. And even though maybe Matilda had something to do with it, but it was the English who actually made it. Uh, other places in England you mentioned, uh, there was Winchester, there was Barking, uh, various other places. In France, uh, uh, saint Florent de Seymour in the Loire Valley, which is George Beach's suggestion. Uh, Grappe uh, put it back in Bayeux uh, fairly recently. Uh, Fécamp Abbey was suggested uh, by uh, Perugrinelli. There was even one rather renegade suggestion that it was made in Ireland, uh, which I think caught everybody by surprise and nobody paid any particular attention to. Uh, As I said, with all of these questions, uh, we all look for the best sorts of evidence that we can to back up our investigations. But the place of origin has really been contested from a vast number of places. Elizabeth, do you want to jump in there? Um, Yeah, I was just going to cite uh, evidence that I published in um, 2011 in Anglo-Norman Studies in an article called Building Stories, the Representation of Architecture in the Bayou Embroidery, where I noted that the three named sites, and there are many 
33, I think, representations of buildings um, spanning the length of the embroidered um, frieze, but there are three named buildings, and those are um, Westminster Abbey, Mont-Saint-Michel, and Basem. And I suggested that each of these three sites pertains to Canterbury narratives, that Basem, as the place from which Harold embarked for the continent, has no place in any Norman narrative whatsoever, and that it's a site that would register in Canterbury um, for its associations um, with the Godwins and the site from which the Godwins departed when they were exiled from England in 1051. So that I was, I was trying to think about um, place names as perhaps providing additional evidence to the, um, the stylistic um, suggestions that Canterbury would be the most likely place of origin. I'm just allowing for another brief pause here. This is actually in the spirit and style of the biotapestry itself, which allows various asides to its main narrative and has its own pauses for breath that are generally denoted by fantastical looking curly trees. Anyway, Elizabeth just mentioned above the oaf scene, which is a pivotal moment in the biotapestry where Earl Harold, so this is before he's become king, swears an oath on holy relics to Duke William in Normandy. Take a look at the scene if you can, because it shows Harold seemingly contorting himself in a very uncomfortable position to make this oath, while the eyes of all assembled bear down on him. The associated captioning leaves a lot of room for an explanation in terms of what Harold was actually swearing to do, but it's seen as part of the pro-Norman narrative that justifies William's invasion on the basis that Harold promised to support William's claim to the throne of England. As Elizabeth says, other documentary narrative sources of the period go into a lot more detail about what this oath might have been. Now don't worry if you want to know more about that because we delve into the link between the tapestry and these other written sources in much more detail in episode 3 of this series. Now, the next topic we're moving on to is the question of whether the tapestry had a patron or someone who commissioned the work and oversaw its tone and content, paid for it and was its guiding hand. There are several contenders for that role. Michael is about to lay out the case for Bishop Odo, the half-brother of Duke William, and a man who seems to have a surprisingly prominent role in the tapestry. You'll also hear references to King Edward the Confessor, who, as you'll know, was the English king whose childless death at the start of 1066 precipitated first the succession of Harold to the throne, and then lastly the invasion by William. King Edward's wife, Queen Edith, also gets mentioned. Edith was not only the king's wife, but also Harold's sister. You'll also hear about Queen Matilda, the wife of King William the Conqueror, and various other Matildas, along with William's son, King Henry I. You'll also hear about the churchmen, Stigand, Lanfranc, and Scotland. So there are quite a few names to contend with, but I'm confident you can keep up. Anyway, back to Michael to lay out the argument for the Odonian explanation for the tapestry patron. Yeah, the Adonian view. I mean, I love that term, um, but um, <laughs> yeah, 
And every time I think about this, I see it as like a fire triangle, really, that Odo's at the top. Um, you know, one of those ones where you take one element away and it all falls down. So you've got Odo, <laughs> Canterbury produced manuscripts, um, and you've got the date in one corner. If the date goes, then Odo doesn't work either, and nor does the Canterbury manuscripts. It's a bit, it's a bit like that. But yeah, essentially, Odo appears in the tapestry on several occasions. Actually, it's quite late on, actually, that he makes his appearance. But nonetheless, he he pops up quite a few times. And he, do, and he does things within the tapestry that you kind of expect other people, maybe if it was being to glor- you know, made to glorify William, maybe it would be William that does some of these things rather than, than Bishop Odo. But it is certainly Odo that is there kind of almost advising William to build an invasion fleet at the crucial point at the Battle of Hastings. He's the guy there who's trying to, um, to prevent chaos, um, ensuring when part of the... Uh, the Norman army starts retreating in front of the um, the shield wall. So there's there's those kind of points in there. Also, there's a there's a, a a few individuals, three named individuals. The naming of characters is fairly rare in the Bayer Tapestry, and you get these individuals who popped up. Who scholars have tried to identify with historical figures, and have come up with some suggestions of people that seem to be associated with um, Bishop Odo um, of Bayer. It was also the case, of course, that he was, after the conquest, made um, Earl of Kent. So geographically, he was placed in an area where we think the tapestry was also produced. So, you know, whether it was necessary or not um, for the, the, um, the, the artists or the designer to gain access to Canterbury Manuscripts um, Scriptoria, whether that was a problem or not is, is difficult to know. But Essentially, if you have someone like Odo's managing this project, you assume that those doors sort of open a bit easier. But I, I think that's not a, a, you know, it's not a game changer, that aspect. So essentially, that's kind of why people have said Odo is is somehow very much involved with the production of this embroidery. Now, what? sorry, just to go on very quickly, but in terms of the, in terms of the patronage, that's a slightly different question because um, obviously... Um, it could be made on the orders of Odo because of those reasons, or it could be made by someone, you know, seeking favour from Odo, or, um, as others will say, um, for, you know, other sorts of reasons as well. So just because he's in it doesn't necessarily mean he's the patron, but people do seem to, you know, put him at the kind of the, the kind of the thrust of the action, as it were. Thank you. And yeah, those 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 three figures that you mentioned, Chirold, Wadard, and Vital, they are they they demand some explanation, don't they? If uh, if uh, if not um, something to do with uh, with Odo. Um, so 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 there's him. There's that um, approach, but there's there's lots of others as well. Um, Shirley, and I'm sure you're on top of the of the various ideas. What about what about Edith, um, the uh, the the wife of Edward the Confessor and uh, sister of King Harold? Uh, well, first of all, back to a little bit about Odo. He was first suggested as the patron as early as 1824. Uh, so this has been really quite an idea that's gone on for quite some time. Uh, I put together a list of at least 13 uh, people, 15 if you count uh, Vodo Ital and Wadart, uh, different people who have been suggested on the women's side, uh, Edith, of course, was suggested fairly recently as the widow of um, of Edward, uh, and that this would be a way of perhaps ingratiating herself into the new the new system. 
uh, but other women, it's not just Queen Matilda. There were three Matildas uh, that were suggested, three different um, generations. Uh, the first, the conqueror's wife, and then Queen Matilda, who was Henry I's wife, and then the Empress Matilda, who was their daughter. They have all been suggested. As I said, Edith. Uh, then there, most recently, Adele of Blois. Uh, daughter of William the Conqueror uh, has been suggested as the patron, which would put the dating, as I said earlier, into about 1115 to 1120. Uh, others, uh, Henry I himself as atonement for burning by a cathedral in 1106 or thereabouts. Uh, Archbishop Lanfranc has been suggested even Archbishop Steigand of Canterbury has been suggested. Uh, Eustace of Boulogne has been suggested. And we must not forget William himself. That doesn't seem to have been a lead that too many people have been following up. But I don't think that we should totally ignore that he, the fact that he might himself have been somehow involved we don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Um, and the the, the Stigand one is, or Steigen is interesting, isn't it? It's kind of that that one is uh, suggests it's kind of a, a an homage to Harold and a flattery to to Odo and William as well. So he he's a he's an interesting figure to to drop into it. But then there's also um, Scotland, who who we've talked about a little bit. Um, uh, 
Elizabeth, you, you what, what's your view on on the on the thorny question of of patronage? Well, I I think that um, when Odo was um, uh, put forth as the patron in a really um, interesting scholarly way in 1957 in the anthology overseen by Sir Frank Stenton, it, it was a good move to look at the evidence of the inscriptions and the pictorial narrative on the embroidery itself. Um, and get away from romantic notions like Queen Matilda, for which there was no evidence. But after um, the Stenton volume of 1957, the case for Odo seemed to harden in without new evidence, and he became a kind of micromanaging patron with a big ego and um, a whole biography about Odo's needs and exigencies was created that, to me, became a limitation rather than the way it began as a close looking at the evidence of the embroidery. And anybody coming up with any theory of patronage has to account for the fact that Odo is present multiple times in in the in the imagery and in the inscriptions. Um, our point of view, I mean, um, Steve White's and mine, was that if you imagined the patronage of the Monastery of Saint Augustine's in Canterbury, you can explain all the people named on the embroidery as part of the confraternity of St. Augustine's um, owing uh, for whom um, the monks owed prayers. And this includes Watered and Vital, who served St. Augustine's in various ways. And Odo performed numerous services for St. Augustine's, including advising them on the translation of relics into their new Norman stone building, which was consecrated in 1091. Does that mean that Odo is this singular, egotistical, micromanaging patron? To me, it's too much. And we very much... um, interested in the notion of internal monastic patronage that Julian Luxford developed around Benedictine monasteries in England, thought that St. Augustine's as a community seeking to reconcile itself to the new Anglo-Norman realities. They wanted to keep their English patrons. They wanted to get along with their new Norman patrons. That St. Augustine's as internal monastic patronage, not this kind of over-personalized patron, made a certain amount of sense. So you've so that gives you uh, like a community patronage type thing. Where does where does um, Scotland fit into that story for you? Well, he's the abbot of Saint Augustine's, um, who would be the abbot 
while the um, while the embroidery was overseen, I don't find evidence that he Scotland was the designer of the embroidery, as has been argued. But it would be something that occurred under his watch. But I suppose my, my work on medieval patronage generally leads me to think that our personalization of a patron, given the infrastructure of monastic communities like St. Augustine's, it isn't necessary that internal monastic patronage is, is a fine way to think about it. It is, it is an abbey that could outsource the stitching to related sister monasteries that had the depth of iconographic models at hand, and I, I tend to see it as more corporate in nature. But uh, Odo is, is someone to be explained, and my explanation would be to understand him within that monastic context. Shalian? Uh, back to Odo, who seems to be the favorite candidate uh, in, in many quarters. One has to remember that you have to reconcile his patronage of the tapestry with his life. And his later life in England was anything but smooth. He was charged with rebellion and overreaching ambition and actually thrown in prison by his brother in 1081, I believe, presumably for aspiring to the papacy. Uh, but I think that's just a cover for some other activities that he was carrying on, rather subversive activities in England. And he was not released until William was on his deathbed. And he was, when William allowed him to be released as part of, well, contrition for sins he may have done during his life or something, according to written traditions, whether it's true or not, we will never know. But he warned that you will regret releasing Odo from prison. Odo went back to England and he immediately started another rebellion. And he was finally kicked out of England by William Rufus. And so if you want to see him as the patron or a motivating force in some way behind the tapestry, you have to somehow reconcile uh, and, and you want to date the tapestry later on in the century, then you have to reconcile what you are saying about his patronage with his activities. Michael, how do you reconcile his activity <laughs> with his patronage? Yeah, well, I was going to say something else first, because um, I, I went to this really interesting uh, lecture the other day where Stephen Baxter was talking about um, Doomsday Book and the creation of that. And it kind of made me reflect a little bit on the Bear Tapestry, because he basically said that he he you could see within the Doomsday Book and the way it was created that that William the Conqueror was a control freak. <laughs> yeah. um, and like Elizabeth, like Elizabeth says, um, when you look at the, um, the Bayer Tapestry, you don't see that in terms of Odo, Bishop of Bayer. And and I think I I don't as as Elizabeth knows, but I don't think we see quite eye to eye on this um, probably. Um, but um, I certainly do take the view that if Odo was a soft patron, if he it, uh, as the patron, um, so I do believe he's the patron of the tapestry. But I don't I do believe that um, there were others 
you know, doing the work. So he basically said, you know, I want a tapestry kind of showing my role in the Norman conquest of England, handed over to you guys. Scotland there, you know, could have had a role in helping access those manuscripts. But then there was a team, um, you know, I assume, you know, managed by an artist, probably the designer, you might say, um, who then kind of got on with it. And whether Odo was involved in those stages of the process or ever again involved in any of the stages of the process is another question. Indeed, in my PhD, I look at some of the um, uh, the evidence from the kind of art historical perspective and basically don't believe that Odo had much of a role um, thereafter, really. Um, so he said, right, this is it. You go off and do it. And then they do it and they create it. Now, what he thought of it, whether he thought it fitted the job or whether he even saw it again is, a, is another sort of um, question. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of, um, I'm quite happy with the soft Odo patronage of the tapestry. Should we think a little bit about the the, the possible audience uh, then of, of who, you know, it, it you know, the audience that it does is slightly follow on from the patronage. So Elizabeth, your audience would be the, the monastic community in a way, and they and that would be the people who would be able to appreciate some of the, the nuances and finer points uh, of, of the content that, that, that you see. Um, uh, it, actually, do you want to do you want to just elaborate on that? Am I, am I correct in 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 saying that? Y- yes, that that these would be people to be prayed for within the community of Saint Augustine's part of its confraternity. But I I suppose um, my my bigger thought is that the the whole textile can be seen as kind of a passion of England, God's punishment for the sins of the English, England needing to move on when God's will and as his agent, um, William invaded England, and that it's, in that sense, um, uh, devotional in nature in recognizing the sins of the nation that led to this conquest. Um, it, different way of thinking about it um, than um, a hard patron, a product of someone inserting themselves. And Michael Shirley Ann and I have all read um, scholarly articles that has Odo standing over a seamstress <laughs> saying, make me bigger, make me more colorful, um, uh, which I just, I, I don't see as the purpose. Um, yeah. uh, I like this idea of a hard patron or a soft patron. It brings to mind uh, talks of Brexit. Um, um, I was thinking at the back of my mind about Brexit and um, and what's happened in the United States, um, because we go through these political events, don't we? Um, you know, like happened in the Norman Conquest of England. And then people think, how on earth did that happen? You know, what led to that event? It's sort of, you know, I think, in both those instances, I think there's a lot of people who said, well, I would have never thought that was going to happen, but it just did. Um, And I think that's what you get in 1066, that there's this kind of conquest. I mean, on paper, this is completely impossible, isn't it? That this guy in Normandy can bring together these resources, cross over the channel, land, which is okay in itself, you you could argue, but then somehow establish himself um, in a position where he defeats Harold in battle, it just seems slightly for us now a bit kind of how on earth did that sort of happen? And I think to some extent that's probably what people thought at the time. 
And I think in some ways, what you see in the Bayer Tapestry is trying to make sense of this sort of chaos, but also leave open the possibility that, okay, we are where we are. We've got to make some sort of way ahead. We don't want to annoy too many people. Um, so I think some of the things that Elizabeth was talking about in terms of, you know, the people who have been affected um, or, or given to Canterbury and we've got to remember them. Um, but also, more generally, you know, the fact is there's going to be a lot of people in this country, um, in England at that time, that would be quite happy to rise up about that. And really, do you want to be parading something? Not to say that they did, but something like the Bear Tapestry to say, right, yeah, we've got one over you guys, that sort of stuff. So I kind of, um, for me, I think it this artwork would have had to be um, exercised with some sort of diplomacy, I, I guess, really. Um, I think that's, in essence, what I see it, see from it. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very interesting view, and particularly the, the unlikeliness of the event, particularly when you think about the timing. Edward the Confessor dies at the start of 1066, and by the end of the year, it's, you know, it's it's done and dusted. He's, you know, William the Conqueror, you know, how did he manage to pull together his his fleet and his uh, his army in that time is, uh, um, does, does, um, does, does pose some questions as well, doesn't it? Um, uh, I, I like what Michael said that that's kind of reassuring for these times we live in, that the unimaginable happened, the worst happened, and and people survived and adjusted. And it, it it's not the worst way to understand this work of art as some kind of grappling, moving through and beyond um, the event. But I suppose the, the, the question then becomes who, to, we need to drill into this a bit more, is who the audience was. Because if you're saying that it is some means of reconciliation or reassurance or trying to move uh, the conversation on past the, the bloody events of the Battle of Hastings, um, who, who's actually looking at this, uh, the, the embroidery? Um, Shelley, what did you have any views on, on the intended audience? Well, I have views on all of these questions. Uh, but a view that I, I would put forward is that, yes, it is possible to see it as something that was for a very specific targeted audience, uh, such as uh, the uh, monastic congregation at St. Augustine's in Canterbury. Uh, but I also think that it is equally likely, I think a little bit more likely personally, that it was really a kind of public art because of the message or the messages that it could bring forward and that it was meant to be seen by a wide audience, uh, which in post-1067 and particularly towards closer towards the, 10, the 1080s, or even after the death of William, uh, that the audience would have been very wide, even in England itself, because you would have the English, you would have the Normans, you would have their offspring, which we love to call Anglo-Normans, you would have the Danes. Everybody seems to forget about the Danish uh, content uh, of the English population. If it were taken, and maybe we'll get onto this later, if it traveled to Normandy or to France, as it certainly did at some point, but if it were close to when it was produced, then you would have the Norman audience. Because we also have to remember that the group of fighters that came over with um, William were not all Normans. In fact, the Norman contingent was probably not even the major 
aspect uh, of the thousands of men who came over. Uh, there were mercenaries, but there were also um, troops, fighters, men taken from all of the different areas uh, of Northern Europe and particularly Northern France who wanted to get in on the take. So I see this as having a very potential, very varied audience. Yes, it may have been suitable for a monastic audience, but I think it was even more suitable for a secular audience. So, so you like the idea of a traveling roadshow type uh, type approach then? Uh, well, that is certainly one possibility. It is very, very portable. Remember, it probably did not have a lining at, at this point. Uh, there's no evidence that it had a lining. In fact, there's evidence otherwise. And it could be rolled up and carried in a very small chest, as we all know. And of course, you can't. There is a chest in Bio, which is supposed to be uh, where it was kept in, which is quite small. And it's notable that uh, it didn't have the gold thread, which would have made it a, a much heavier and bulkier thing. Um, Elizabeth, I think you wanted to come back in before Michael uh, has, has something I was... to say. I was just going to make the point that's been made that um, in support of um, Shirley's point about multiple audiences is its portability. I always imagined it in kind of six feet lengths in a coffin size box, um, less disruption on the embroidery, but it could travel. And I still think while it could travel to the audiences, Shirley Ann's talking about the specificity of names we come back to does seem to speak to a first audience in Canterbury. Um, but, but thereafter, um, there, there are very interesting hypotheses and questions about when it would have left England. So, um, Michael, you can correct me, I'm sure you will, but uh, would I be right in thinking that you would see the audience as the audience uh, attending the consecration of uh, Odo's Cathedral in Bayeux? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that, I think, I think that's, that's not a correction so much. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I'll let, I'll let you off the hook there a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's obviously there's a difference between what it was made for and then what sort of happened to it. I think, uh, you know, they, they could be quite different things, actually. Um, and indeed, you know, given the, the tapestry survives in pretty good condition, considering the circumstances, um, you, you, it kind of lends me to think that maybe it didn't really kind of, it wasn't potentially utilised for the kind of task that it was designed for, perhaps. And, and another thing that kind of comes to me with, with talking to people who have made kind of replica embroidery, embroideries, what, what I find remarkable, and remember, Dave, we went to the Canadian embassy, didn't we? We saw this black gold tapestry. And I think what was completely amazing about that is that they didn't have any idea where they would display it. Um, so it does make me wonder sometimes whether people did make things without completely understanding what they were next going to do with it. Um, and indeed, you know, when you think of um, illuminated manuscripts, I mean, we talked about the old English Hexateuch already, and that's an unfinished, you know, work that's in Canterbury. Um, did it ever see the light of day? Uh, was it ever used? Or was the task of producing this the most important thing? And there is part of me that thinks that is, I think we we can't forget that sometimes making something, doing something, is just as important as what might happen to it next, actually. Um, I mean, the reason I kind of 
obviously, we know that the tapestry was kind of um, displayed later on in Bayer Cathedral, and we know it was in Bayer Cathedral. Um, I'm not saying that was what the purpose was, but I certainly do believe it came across probably um, to France at the time of the consecration of the cathedral. No evidence for that whatsoever, just a kind of gut reaction. Um, But the reason I think that is because it sort of explains why it did end up in Bayeux. What's the other reason for the tapestry to go to Bayeux if it's not connected with Bishop Odo of Bayeux? That's my sort of um, gut reaction. Now, whether it was made for some, you know, he delivered it or gave it at the consecration for any great display at the cathedral or not is another question. And indeed, um, I think, you know, my kind of personal view is that it may have not been delivered there for the intention of display. It may have been part of the consecration of the cathedral. It may have been a gift from England, um, as it were, or from Odo, but it might not have been ever designed to be stuck anywhere. So, I mean, that's that's my sort of gut reaction is that it it somehow ended up in Bayer, probably at the time of the consecration of the cathedral, but not particularly for display in the cathedral, which we know a lot of people have argued for. It is an interesting idea to think that it was just made and then stuck in a box and never really saw the light of day for X hundred number of centuries, but um, which might explain uh, its its preservation. But look, the, what the, it definitely does end up in Bayer, and we know we don't as as we talked about, we don't actually know anything about what happens to we we don't know when it was made, as we talked about. Um, uh, though we can take a view on it, and we don't know where it ended up uh, in the immediate aftermath. We do know it ended up in Bayer. Uh, by the 15th century, um, because that's there's records of that, and that's where it's been uh, pretty much ever since. Um, so, does anyone, uh, Elizabeth, or, well, uh, uh, Shelley Ann, do you know what, why, where does it, how does it end up in in bio? Do you think what's what's its immediate post creation history, and how does it get to bio? Well, as Michael pointed out, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever on the ground that it was there for the consecration of the cathedral. There have been many arguments as to why it could not be there. Uh, All we know is it was there by the latter part of the 1400s, by the 1470s. I think that We cannot dismiss the evidence that George Beach uh, discovered in manuscripts, uh, inventories of the embroideries, the textile hangings that were in the possession of the King of France in the 14th century. References to a tapestry, um, that's how we translate toile, it could be an embroidery, of the conquest of England featuring William the Conqueror, which was old and venerable, which was put out for repairs because it was full of tears and holes, Uh, that it stayed in the French possession, uh, the French crown's possession, uh, throughout the 14th century and was transferred to Bayeux at some time after that. The uh, trail goes cold uh, uh, after um, uh, the early 1400s, 1420s, uh, when it was in the possession of the Duke of Bedford, when he was regent of France. Uh, So there's that kind of 50-ish year span in which scholars are trying to figure out who and why it may have been transferred to Bayeux at that point. Now, there's nothing to say that it wasn't in Bayeux earlier, Michael, uh, for the 1070s and then somehow wandered away uh, away from Bayeux. So we don't know how it really ended up 
if, in fact, the inventories are about the tapestry, but I have a feeling that they probably are. Uh, we don't know how, you know, really quite was what was going on. Uh, its first mention in the documents is, and, and I believe it is a mention of its existence, is in a poem uh, by Baudry de Bourgoy, uh, which I wrote an article with my husband about, and we had decided that Baudry had seen the tapestry before 1102, that he would have had to see it in France because he didn't go to England until after that. But that's tied in with the idea of Odo's patronage. If you get rid of Odo's patronage, uh, then it could have come over to France at any point or before Odo wrote his poem uh, or Odo could have seen it in France or he could have seen it in England later on when he went over. So it, it's still a conundrum. And Elizabeth, your thesis does get rid of Odo's patronage. Um, uh, but so you, your your contention is that it's made uh, in Canterbury for, for Canterbury purposes. So how do you think it ends up in, in Bayeux? I, I think it's I think its first viewers were the monks of Saint Augustine's Canterbury, uh, but I I I found um, Shirley Ann and Michael um, Heron's um, uh, evidence that it was in on the continent by the early twelfth century, um, wholly convincing. Um, they undertake a very close comparison between Baudry uh, Bourgay's literary description and the embroidery. And it, to, to me, we don't know as much as we'd like to about the afterlife of the embroidery following its creation, but I, I'm persuaded that it was on the continent. Um, by the early 12th century, based on their evidence. I, I did want to say that um, if it were made for Bayeux Cathedral, um, Bayeux doesn't receive much notice in the pictorial narrative, and the form of reference to Bayeux is an anglicized reference. It's called Bagias, not Biochensis. And um, it's odd to me that it would have um, such a slight reference, even relics of Bayeux, on which Harold, um, in some accounts, would have sworn his oath, are not named or specified in any way. So I, I think anybody who would have it made for the 1077 consecration of Bayeux Cathedral has to explain why Bayeux isn't a stronger character in the embroidery. I think it is interesting. I think it's important, in fact, that, that Bayeux does seem to be mentioned in the Bayeux tapestry itself, and the oath scene seems to be at Bayeux. And again, you know, that is not in any other contemporary source. I'm not saying that the tapestry was specifically designed necessarily for the consecration of the cathedral, but it ended, it was, that is when it came over. Um, 
I appreciate what um, you know Shirley Ann's been saying about the travelling of a embroidery tapestry or whatever, and obviously the the references in in the poem as well that that she's talked about. But I mean, I think one thing is striking about the Bayer tapestry is that it isn't the most amazing piece of <laughs> work of art in in many ways. And I know we're going to talk about that in a, another you know podcast about the kind of materiality of it. But I mean. You can imagine that there's, you know, in terms of the materials used, they are fairly basic. And I can imagine that there are other possibilities of other sorts of tapestries that are similar, telling similar sorts of narratives that could be interpreted as as the Bayer tapestry um, about as well. So, I mean, I'm not saying that is the case, but I, I, I'm certainly thinking it's 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 not impossible that there were other Bayer t- tapestry type objects floating about at this time. Uh, Just one last point. We've been talking about its display in an ecclesiastical kind of situation, whether it's monastic or the cathedral in Bayeux or any other ecclesiastical establishment in England. Certainly, there are difficulties in how it would be actually mounted in this kind of architecture and be actually visible and readable. Uh, the very practical suggestion that it was meant for the great hall of these new castles that were going up at great speed all over England, I think, cannot be ignored. Uh, As Elizabeth pointed out, it certainly was not a practical sort of thing. It wouldn't have kept out any drafts uh, because of its format. And I think its format meant that it was really meant as a display piece, And I can certainly see it being displayed in various of these halls uh, where the Normans had established themselves throughout England uh, that were started very soon after the conquest themselves. They went up very fast. They were quite prodigious buildings. They weren't all just wooden keeps. And it works physically uh, very well on the stone walls uh, of these great halls. So I think we have a variety of possibilities where it could be exhibited, where it could be it could be read, but I don't think we can necessarily pin down any argument that says that it was destined for one particular location. Right. Okay, to to wrap up, um the questions I've posed uh, today on this podcast were: uh, When, where, and why was the uh, was the bio tapestry made? I wonder if you all want to just offer maybe a, a, a concluding comment or remark about those those questions. We've tried to answer them, and obviously there are different views on all those things. But I wonder if perhaps you'd all like to just offer a, a, some words of conclusion to those particular questions. I'm going to go to Elizabeth first. <laughs> Oh goodness! Um, <laughs> yeah. oh. Well, the the one thing that that hasn't come up that I that I uh, had in my notes to mention it, it is just really a, an addendum. It's not a conclusion, and that is that that there are approximately six hundred and twenty seven figures in the pictorial narrative. Six of them are women. And um, th- that it it it's it, it therefore speaks to a certain kind of um, community, not not a not a not a mixed one. Um, could be monastic, could be um, 
political insiders. Um, and I, I suppose the other thing that I, I'd like to, to mention <laughs> instead of a conclusion, because it hasn't come up, is um, that the deathbed of King Edward receives enormous attention. Um, some of the narrative moves in reverse as if to highlight this scene. The deathbed scene itself is a kind of a double-decker um, composition that demands your attention. And um, this highlighting of the question of succession um, seems to me to place it in an English um, context for its manufacture. Um, so having made those two points, um, the last point by way of a non-conclusion is over a quarter of the embroidery is the battle itself and the horrors of the battle and the decapitated heads falling into the borders. And it's the least written about part um, be because the interpretation it doesn't need to be explained. It's a terrible battle. And um, I, I think that's where I keep coming back to a kind of um, passion in the religious sense, meaning martyrdom, a passion of England um, thought that if you just look at the way it's laid out, the battle is overwhelmingly the largest and most insistent part of this embroidery. Inevitably, we spend our time on other parts of it because they're so interesting, but the battle is the overwhelming fact of it. Thanks. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting and good point. It does tend to uh, get slightly overlooked in some of the analysis. Michael, do you want to offer a conclusion, non-conclusion addendum? I'll, I'll accept anything. <laughs> well, I, Thank I, you. I, I think I can offer a bit of a conclusion. I mean, I think one thing where at the moment scholars are kind of more or less um, agreeing on is this kind of English stroke Canterbury provenance of the tapestry. I think there's more, much more agreement on that probably than many other aspects. And I'd also like to, I, from a personal perspective, I also think that Odo had a hand in it. But as we've discussed, that hand might not be a, a very hard hand, maybe a touch or maybe a bit like Harold on the altar, just almost touching it, but not quite touching it sort of hand on the production of the tapestry. And I think in terms of the, the date, um, I mean, I'm fairly happy in my own mind to kind of look at that sort of 1070s thing. The only thing we've we haven't really talked about um, again is 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 what was the political you know how does that work with the political context at that time because it doesn't um, easily actually um, um, and uh, and also you know uh, Shelley Ann Brown talked about the kind of possible places that it could have been exhibited and I think it's an important point to say that it could have been exhibited quite easily in both the what we would call a secular and e ecclesiastical context. I don't think that is a, a game changer as it has been sort of seen as uh, in the past. Um, but for me, it sort of suits the narrative um, as I kind of, uh, we all like to try and package things together. Um, and for me, it, it, you know, if I was to simplify the, the kind of story of the Bayer Tapestry, I would say that it was made um, to be kind of given um, over to Bayer Cathedral. And that's basically how it sort of um, ended up there probably at the time of the consecration. So I'm, you know, still, I'm not 
overly worried about saying that. Thanks, Michael. Shirley Ann, do you want the, the last word? Well, uh, yes. I think that when you look at the questions of who, what, where, when, and where, and why, uh, that we really don't know. Uh, and one of the wonderful things about the tapestry is that we really don't know anything about it. So it gives scholars and anybody who looks at it uh, great latitude in interpretation. It has spawned a whole industry of scholarly articles over the past 300, almost 400 years. But what has, we can't forget is the tapestry itself and how what a marvelous uh, work of art it is. Yes, it isn't luxurious, but it speaks to the audience, and I think it always did. It's at least superficially easy to read, and you can read whatever you, you want into it, and it's fun to look at it. Because of all of the details, the more you look at it, the more you see. And think of a medieval audience Long nights, whether you're in northern England or in, in England or northern France, six months of the year, the majority of the day is dark. You're indoors. There's no television. There's no newspaper. There might be a minstrel here and there if you're upper class. There's not much to do except make children uh, or dream about fighting. Uh, so it's fun to look at. <laughs> People would have more time to look at it than they do now when they're pushed through uh, the museum at Bayeux at a pace that's set by the phones that they've stuck on their heads and so forth. You look at all of these details, you chuckle when you look at the nude man squatting and you say, well, what is he doing? Couldn't he find a little bush or something? Why in front of everybody? And you, It's fun. There's a lot of gore in, in the battle, but we're very moralistic today. People like gore. Look at the video games, the ones that my sons and my grandchildren play. I cringe. I just want to go shut the machine off. People like gore. And if you are dealing with the male audience, we are looking at a militaristic audience of trained head bashers. Power was might. So I think we have to be careful how we interpret what we call the horrors of the uh, of the battle. Uh, we have to be careful not to impose our 20th century, 21st century views on it, but nevertheless, that's where we come from. The amazing thing about the tapestry is that it has retained our attention. It hasn't been just kept in it, its little box. Uh, when you go to Bayeux and you look at the audience that comes to see it, they come from all over the world. They do. They want, they, they see it. And it's not just because of publicity. I see them pointing at various things in the tapestry. I see them stopping and defying the pace on their headphones. I see them talking to each other. I, I see them walking around me when I'm stuck on a particular scene. Uh, it is the most amazing thing that there is. 
Thank you, Shirley. That's a delightful characterization of, uh, of uh, long medieval lonely nights. Um, and you're absolutely right that, uh, 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 that the tapestry continues to have power today, doesn't it? And, and, uh, and uh, continues to dominate debates and continues to dominate our understanding of, uh, of the events of the Norman Conquest, um, which is one of the things that uh, we will be chatting about later in this uh, podcast series, I think. So, um, everybody, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's been a very interesting discussion. Um, uh, Shelley and Brown, Elizabeth Hassan, Michael Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That brings us to an end of episode one of our series. Thanks to Professors Elizabeth Paston, Shirley Ann Brown, and Michael Lewis. Episode two takes us on to explore the question of how the tapestry was made and how we should understand it as an artifact and piece of material culture. Just as a reminder, the story of the bio-tapestry, Unraveling the Norman Conquest, written by me, David Musgrove, and Michael Lewis, is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021. We've also written a feature on what's missing from the bio-tapestry in the March issue of BBC History magazine. Plus, of course, you'll find all manner of great tapestry content on our website, historyextra.com, including a piece by Shirley Ann Brown on the Nazis' fascination with the tapestry. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.